Good morning, everybody. My name is Pastor Steve. I want to welcome you to Shelby Road Baptist Church. Si hablas español, bienvenidos a Shelby Road Baptist Church as well. Yeah. Yeah. You guys excited to be here? Excited to be back at church? A couple people are excited to be back at church today. (laughs) No, I'm excited to be back up here. I missed you guys. I wasn't gone. I just wasn't up here. It's all good. Pastor McNeil was. Didn't he knock it out of the park in the Jonah series? Yeah. So good. Learned so much. If you didn't get a chance to hear all of those sermons, I strongly encourage you to go online and listen to them. We've got a podcast. We've got uh, them available on our website, shelbyroad.org, so make sure that you take advantage of that. Um, We're starting a new series today. You ready to start it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the awesome pleasure of getting my very first taste of the fair. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a city boy, so I was very out of place. Uh, But you know what? I'm a great sport, and I wanted to learn, so I went... And uh, it was awesome, man. We had a group of us from church there watching uh, some of our students do their thing, and they did so good. And I understand why they did so good now, because I learned what they're doing. Uh, I now know what a steer is. I didn't know that. Before, I was calling them cows like a city boy does. I didn't know what I was doing. But we're sitting there watching everything go on. And it's, you know, me and Pastor McNeil and other people from church. And then Anna Waller comes walking up to us from my left. And she says to me and Pastor McNeil, she says, you need to move your cars. I said, what? She says, no, you have to move your cars. They're going to tow them away. And both me and Pastor McNeil looked at her and said, you're lying. Whoever has put you up to this and is trying to pull one over on us, it's not going to work. You're lying, whatever. And so poor Anna Waller turned around and walked away. About five minutes later, she came back. No, really, you guys got to move your cars. They're going to tow them away. They announced it over the loudspeakers. They said Lister and McNeil. And we said, how would they even know that there are cars? This is clearly somebody from the church trying to pull one over on us. It's not going to work. Now, This may be a character flaw on our part. Because the reason we automatically assume this is because it's totally something we would do. (laughs) It's absolutely something we would do. That's hilarious. We, when I pulled in, I I came in early, and so I ended up coming in via the exit, which I didn't know was the exit, but that's how it came in, via the exit. And so I parked right there. I saw, I saw Pastor McNeil's cars right there. I'm going to park right next to him. Perfect. So we did that. I had no idea where I was. But if I had to move my car, I'd have to go all the way to the back of the field. That's hilarious. That's so funny. I would totally do that to somebody. So I think that's what's happening. So we dismiss her again. About 10 minutes later, she comes walking back to us. I got it. She's a very, very persistent young lady. And said, no, really, you guys got to move your cars. They're going to tow them away. And we let, listen, 
Listen, tell whoever it is that we kind of almost went and then it was ha-ha and all that kind of stuff so that they think they pulled it over on us. Well, about 30 seconds after that, Scott Bysize and comes near us and says, hey, you guys really got to move your cars. <laughs> For real, I said, how do they know that there are cars? I said, the Hart Police Department ran your plates. I'm thinking, great. I've lived here for three months or something like that, and I'm already a fugitive of the law. (laughs) Sometimes it's easy to tell if something is a lie or not a lie. Um, Sometimes it's not. (laughs) Sometimes we are over-skeptical about something, and we we don't believe at all something that we should believe. And other times, though, we fall into this trap. We believe things that we shouldn't believe at all. And it's usually because they're kind of commonly held beliefs. That's usually the way that it goes. I've got a couple of examples for you, okay? Um, Sitting too close to the TV will wreck your eyesight. It's not true. It's actually not true. If you look up studies, they say that's absolutely not true. Here's another one. Lightning never strikes the same place. It does, actually. A lot of times, potentially. It was one, I think it was like in 2014, the Willis Tower in Chicago was struck by lightning 10 times in one day. Yeah. I'm never going to the top of that thing again. <laughs> and then I think they said, on average, a year, it struck 100 times a year. That's crazy, right? Sometimes we believe things, and we really shouldn't. This even go back to, going back to being a kid, right? I never wanted to eat the watermelon that had seeds in it. You know why? Because if I accidentally eat a seed, a tree's going to grow in my stomach. That one's true. No, we're in a new series called Lies Believers Believe. Over these four weeks, we are going to isolate and go after four individual, very powerful, commonly held beliefs that are actually lies. That many of us, especially those of us that have given our lives to Christ and call ourselves Christians, we tend to believe that these things are true. And lie number one today is at the top of your bulletin sheet on the back, that notes, those notes. It's lie number one, God loves me but he doesn't like me. God loves me, but he doesn't like me. This one sound, it might sound strange to you at first, but it's actually really prevalent. There are many, many people that I have talked to who have this belief entrenched in their heart. Because I'll tell them, hey, listen, God loves you. Jesus loves you. And the response will be kind of, yeah, I know. I get that. But I'm just not sure that he likes me very much, right? You imagine if Jesus himself walked into this room here today. Now, God is present with us, but I'm just talking Jesus in physical form walked into this room. Who would he want to talk to? Would he want to talk to you? Would you be one of the first people that he makes a beeline for and wants to actually just have a face-to-face chat with you. I think I'm, I'm a pastor, and I'm even hesitant to say yes 
to that question. I think, well, there's clearly somebody else who's more important to him that he'd want to talk to. But this is kind of where this comes from. I think we have this category because in families, we grow up, and many, many times, I've heard it, and other people have heard it. I've even said it. Well, hey, the people in my family, I love them, but doesn't mean I got to like them. And we separate these two things. We say it all the time, even with friends of ours. Or we say it about coincidences, not coincidences. We say it about acquaintances. We say, well, listen, I, Jesus tells me to love people, so I love them, but it doesn't mean I got to like them. We separate these two things, and we create these two different categories, and then we end up forecasting this onto God. And this is a problem because I spend my time with people who like me, right? I spend my time with people who like me. Unless maybe, maybe one of you out there spends a lot of time with somebody that doesn't like you. And I don't know why you would do that. <laughs> but this is what we spend our time with. When we are convinced, or at least inwardly, believing this little seed of a lie that can grow into something uh, bigger, that maybe God doesn't really like me that much. Like, I, I'm in, you know, but I don't know that I'm that in. You know, I, I, uh, it's like... You ever gone up to Mackinac Island and, or up to Mackinac City and taken the ferry over to the island? Those ferries are very scheduled. They leave at certain times. I was up there one time, and I mean, I was the last person on the boat. The last one. They shut the doors and started moving before I sat down. Okay, I was the last one on the boat. But I feel, sometimes I think we feel like that. Well, I just got in. I'm in. I'm in God's family, and I'm saved, and all that stuff, but I'm just kind of the one at the back of the boat who just barely got in, you know, and that's just kind of how it is. Well, we don't spend time with a God that we don't think likes us. We might read our Bible. We might pray a little bit, but we don't, we don't really get close to him. Well, I'm going to help us prove today. I'm going to prove to you through three different proofs that this Statement: God loves me, but he doesn't like me is a lie. It's a bold-faced lie. He actually likes you. Did you know this? Did you know that God likes you? He gets a kick out of you. Right? He wants to spend time with you every single day. Let's look at a few different proofs here that help us understand this. The first one's going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. You turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1. says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Praise be to God and fa- praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
Okay, so these three proofs, uh, I'm going to encourage you to write them down in your notes. It's three simple statements, and here's the first one, okay? How do we know that God's love is not just a passive love, that it's an active love, that means he also likes us, wants us, desires us? Here's, here's first statement, number one. He chose you. He chose you. Now, that sounds very simple, but it's also very profound. He, ch- he chose you. You don't choose someone unless you want to. Notice what it says here. It says that he did this to the praise of his glorious grace through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure. And will, and we might think, well, it's just, you know, his will, that God has a plan, and all that stuff. But then we take all of the aspects of, of personhood away from God when we need to remember that we like things because God is someone who likes things and likes people. And he has pleasure and delight. And his pleasure was to choose you. If you've given your life to Christ, he chose you. Now, we might think, well, that, I, I, that means I chose him, right? Like, I, I looked at all these other religions for a little while, and I, I kind of, you know, played around with this one and a little bit with that one, and then I was an atheist for a little while, and then finally, I chose Christ. Well, I got news for you. If you chose Christ, he chose you, and he chose you first. What's happening here in Ephesians helps us understand the power of this. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus at this time was a big and powerful city. I mean, I'm talking New York City, Beijing, that kind of stuff. Like really big city and a lot happening in it. And because there's a lot happening in it, there's also a lot of evil things happening in it. And one of the most evil things that was happening in Ephesus at this time was that legally, fathers had the right, and I say fathers because women didn't really have a lot of rights here, fathers had the right to disown their babies for really any reason at all. So at birth, they'd be born, and if they determined that, well, I wanted a boy and I got a girl or I didn't like the kid's eye color, or I didn't like, or more importantly, if the child was deformed in some way, or there was a birth defect, then the father would be able to say, don't want it, and cast it away. And what they would do with all of these unwanted babies is that they would put them on garbage dumps, and on dung heaps, and leave them there. It was not unusual in the city, in different areas of the city, to be walking down the street and hear the cries of babies. This is what was happening there. And so the Christians in that city, God's chosen people, decided that they were going to do something about this in the city, and so they started rescuing these babies. And as they rescued these babies, they'd bring them into the church, and they'd bring them into the families of the church, and they would adopt them, and they would raise them. And this was happening for a long period of time, so much so that when Paul's writing this letter, it is not out of the question to assume that there were a lot of adults in the Ephesian congregation who were these babies when they were young. And many of them 
if not all of them, had this story. No one chose me. They didn't want me. I was left on a garbage dump. And the church took me in, but that's a, that's a true wound. And can you imagine, if you've got a congregation of not only people who helped rescue these babies, but people who were these babies in the past, and then Paul, God, through Paul, says this, for he chose you. He picked you. When nobody else did, he picked you. He chose you. Why? According to his pleasure. Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to choose you. There's incredible power in this truth. Incredible power if we'll, just, if we'll just accept it as the reality. If I've given my life to Christ, he picked me first. This gets even better. Look again at verse 4. For he chose us in him. What's that next word? Before. Before the creation of the world. How's that possible? Well, all things are possible for God. Before the creation of the world, before he spoke and made anything into being, before he did any of this, he chose you. Before. Before you succeeded at anything. Before you failed at anything. He pointed at you and said, I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. Before. 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 This is incredibly powerful. Um, I like competition shows. Anybody watch competition shows with me? Yeah? There's a lot of them out there. There's cooking competitions. There's all kinds of stuff. I think what, the ones that seem to be most prevalent are the singing competition shows. You know, like American Idol or uh, America's Got Talent or The Voice. Every time that we go over to uh, Pastor McNeil and Cindy's house, it's six in one hand, half dozen in the other. If Caitlin's going to be sitting there showing them America's Got Talent videos because they're just awesome and they make you cry. <laughs> but this is how those shows work. There's somebody goes up on the stage and then they sing or do Whatever it is that they do, they perform in some way, shape, or form, and then there's a panel of judges, and one, two, three, four, five, however many judges there are, and they try out for whatever it is that they're giving away at the end of the show, whether it's, you know, money, a cash money prize, but usually it's like an opportunity of some kind, right? That's usually what they're giving to these winners. And so they go up there and they perform, they try out, and then the judges either choose them or don't choose them right? That's fine for competition shows. The problem is many of us in this room are living life like that. Many of us in this room are living life like that. Your whole life is a tryout. Your whole life is an audition. You're performing and you're trying to get someone, anyone to like you. Right? So this is what we do. We use just the right words. We tell just the right jokes. 
right? Maybe if you're in school, you hang out with just the right people or you use just the right kind of apps on your phone. Or you know what? This applies to adults too. We post just the right things on social media because I want somebody to like me. I want people to like and accept me, so I'm trying out. This whole thing is an audition. What if we do this? We get into an authenticity competition. This is what we do a lot younger people. We get online and we post online and we post the most real, raw thing that we can post. Why, because I'm trying out. I feel the pressure to have a perfectly ordered house all the time. Especially if people are coming over. Why? Because I'm trying out. We don't say it that way, but that's what's happening. I'm trying out. It's an audition. We even do this. <laughs> Men, we do this too. Men in the room, have you ever said that you liked something that you didn't really like? You're laughing because you know it's true. Oh, yeah, I like hunting. I hunt all the time. So you go hunting and then you pick up a gun and you've never picked up a gun before. We do this. We're trying out. We do this for God, too. We do this with God. I'm serving in the church all the time, every week. I say yes to every time somebody asks me to serve in the church. I am singing as loud as I possibly can when we start the worship on Sunday morning. I'm memorizing crazy amounts of verses all the time. I got flashcards going in my Bible constantly. And then after that, after all of that, I make sure that I'm up at 4 a.m. every single day to pray for three hours. Okay, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but if they are a part of a tryout program for God, that's a problem. Because I have fundamentally misunderstood and bought into the lie that God's favor and liking toward me has anything to do with how I do. I'm trying out. God's not impressed with this. He's not. Look at Psalm 147, verse 10. Psalm 147, verse 10, I'll throw it up on the screen for you so you don't have to turn to it. It says this, his pleasure, God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who, what's that word? Fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So the strong performance, the really good tryout doesn't impress me. Okay, I already chose you. I chose you before. So stop trying out. Stop it. Cancel the audition. Stop doing this all over in life and know that, listen, God loves you, but he likes you and he picked you. He chose you before. That's proof number one. Don't forget that. He chose you before. Here's proof number two. We're gonna find it in Numbers chapter six. We're doing a little tour of scripture today. Numbers chapter six. Verse 22 is where we're going to start. If the first proof that we covered today is that he chose you, here's the second one I want you to write down. It's going to sound weird. He smiles at you. He smiles at you. Let's look at the text. Verse 22 in chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. There's two phrases in there about God's face. The Lord make his face shine on you and the Lord turn his face toward you. What's happening here is that God's people, the Israelites, he chooses a subset of those people, the Levites, to be priests. And their jobs as priests, there were a lot of things involved in their jobs. They were conducting the daily worship service is one of the things that they did. And what God did is he gave them very specific instructions for not only what he wanted them to do for the people, but what he wanted them to say to the people. And he said, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. And this comes at the close of every worship gathering. And for them at that time, it was not weekly, it was daily. So if you're thinking, man, God is giving the priest the instructions to give a daily reminder to his people, a daily reminder every single day. What does God want them to know every single day? What does he want them to know? What does he need them to be reminded of? I'm smiling at you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. This Hebrew construction is a statement about divine favor, but it's coming from the face. How do you show someone favor from your face? You smile. This is what God is telling us. It's powerful. At this time, there were many, many false gods, many false gods all over the place. But the one thing that they had in common, they were all different. They did different things. They achieved different ends. They worshiped them and created them for different reasons. But one of the things that they all pretty much had in common was you should not automatically assume that you have their favor. You need to earn the favor of the gods. That's a very commonly held belief at this time. And God is saying, listen, Israelite priests, here's what I want you to do. I need you every single day to remind my people that they already have my favor. I already am smiling toward them. I like them. You need to tell them this every single day. Now, I know that that sounds like a sermon point that should be in our kingdom kids or something like that. He smiles. God smiles at you. But it's true, and you need to know this. There's power in a smile. Right? They tell you, uh, if you have a young baby at home, that one of the best things that you can do for your young baby is to do what? Smile at them. Right? A lot, all the time. And they smile back, and then there's these bonds that develop, and all you're doing is smiling back and forth at each other. There was one time, actually, it's been more than one time, but I have a young baby at home. His name is Lincoln, and sometimes he loses his mind. <laughs> and one of these times... <laughs> I think it was because he had a toy that he was trying to get into his mouth and he couldn't do it. Anybody relate? I'm just kidding. Screams his head off. Appropriate response. And he's doing this and I'm holding him and I just decide, okay, my wife had given me this instruction. She said, you just need, when they're not calm, you just need to be calm in front of them. You know, just do this. I said, okay, I'm going to try it. I don't know if I buy it, but I'm going to give it a shot. My son's losing his mind, and I look, and I hold him right here so that he can see my face, and all I do is I just smile at him. I just smile, and I say, hey, you're okay. And about 10 seconds after that, he started to calm down. 
That's that last verse. Go back to that Numbers passage really quick. That last verse, 26. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you what? Peace. God gives peace in many different ways, but don't forget that this, is, this structure right here is about what God is doing with his face toward me, and there's something about this that gives me peace. It gives me peace in the midst of anxiety to know that I have God's favor. He likes me, and this is his default position toward me. Imagine yourself once again. If you were going to meet the physical Jesus face-to-face, what expression do you think would be on his face toward you? I think a lot of us, I think sometimes me, even a lot of the time, I think, well, he would probably just be kind of annoyed at me or angry at me or he would just have a look of disappointment looking at me. But what if that's not the case? I'm telling you, it's not. You've given your life to him. He chose you. Here's the other thing. He's smiling at you. You walk into that scenario, that's, that's what you're going to get. And he, even when God talks to me about my sin, when he talks to me about the things that I need to change, don't forget that this default position of his is this favor that he's already given to us. A smile is incredibly powerful and it gives me peace because all of the things that I am worrying about can melt away in the face of God's smile. They can, and they do. I experienced this when I was about 18 years old with my own father. Uh, I had taken, I was on a lot of uh, pain medicine and other kinds of medicine for sinus problems I was having, and there was a drug interaction that happened in my system, and it sent my heart rate from a normal 60 beats per minute to a crazy 230 in about 35 seconds. Uh, pain in the chest, all up and down the arm, all that stuff. When you're 18, you're thinking, I'm going to die. And I don't know why. I don't understand what's happening. And we didn't really understand what's happening, so we had to go to the ER. So my dad is driving me to the ER, and he's kind of freaking out. And by the way, I did the math. He was not that much older than I am now when this was happening. <laughs> but we're driving down there, and I am, I am panicking. I am hitting the panic button. I am going nuts all of that stuff. We pull in and we get checked in, all the kind of stuff, and I'm still going nuts. And there was a moment where he just turned. He turned and looked at me and he just smiled. That's all he did. He just smiled. Say. He said a lot of things to me that night. I don't remember any of them, but I remember that look. And I remember how much peace it gave. Man, if we would just remember this. In the midst of our anxiety and stress, in the midst of all the things that make us freak out, in the midst of everything that is heavy upon us, if we would remember when we open up the word and we get down in prayer, right when we start off, you don't have to fight for his attention. You don't have to try and convince him to listen to you. He's already smiling at you. Hey, let's get together. Let's talk about what's going on. The Lord turns his face towards you and gives you peace. He chose you. Okay? God loves me, but he doesn't like me. No, that's a lie because he chose you before you did anything. He chose you. He smiles at you. He gives you his favor. Here's the last one. Malachi chapter 3. You actually heard it in the worship. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 6. It's the last book of your Old Testament.
Malachi chapter 3. Malachi's a minor prophet that God sends to the Israelites. And in these minor prophets, you find a lot of calling out of sin. That this minor prophet's been given a message, and the message that he's been given is, hey, you guys need to turn. You need to turn from what you have been doing. And what is it that they've been doing? They have been withholding tithes from God. Probably out of fear more so than anything else. Sometimes it's out of greed, but really for most of us, the opposite of generosity isn't greed, it's fear. We don't give because we're afraid that we're going to need it. And, by the way, someday you will need it. Welcome to the adventure of being generous. This is what God calls us to, but they were withholding their tithes. And so God says in verse 6 of chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. It's a very important theological statement right there. You've got to put that verse in your back pocket. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from me my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? We don't know what we're doing and we don't know how to make this better. And so God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, you might assume in this moment that God's going to follow this up with, and I'm going to bring the hammer. They're robbing God. How would you treat someone who's robbing you? Just want to set this up. How would you treat someone who's robbing you? Not robbed, robbing, actively. Okay? So we understand what our natural assumption might be here, that God's going to bring the hammer. That's not exactly what he brings. Look at verse 10. He says this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Stop giving me half. Stop giving me a portion. Bring the whole thing into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Because at this time, when you tithe, you would give cattle and livestock, right? That there may be food in my house. And then he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. What? (laughs) They were robbing you. (laughs) They're robbing you. You said that they're robbing you. And then you said, hey, bring the whole thing. Listen, stop doing that. Bring the whole thing and watch what I'm going to do. Because... Here's the third statement. You ready for this? He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. I don't know if we assume that this is God's default position a lot. I don't know, I don't know what you think. I know that I have thought many different things in my life, but I'm ashamed to admit, rarely have I thought God's default position is that he wants to bless me. I thought, maybe punish me, sure. Uh, Discipline me, yep, a lot. Um, (laughs) But did you know that his default position and his number one desire, his preference is to bless you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to. If there are times where he doesn't bless me in particular ways, it's because he's a good father and he knows that there's something else that's better for me in this broken world. But don't let that keep you from believing the truth that he wants to bless you. He wants to. He says, 
I'm gonna open up the floodgates of heaven. The floodgates of heaven. Floodgates are huge. Okay, floodgates are huge, but there's something even more powerful about this statement. This Hebrew phrase, open the floodgates of heaven, was used one time before. It was used in Genesis chapter 7. I'm going to throw this up on the screen for you. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. This is when God flooded the earth. Said, open the floodgates of heaven. Not only did he respond kindly to the people that were robbing him, his people, not only did he say, return to me and I'll return to you, not only did he say, I'm going to bless you, he used a phrase that calls to mind this event and says, like the rain fell from the heavens and flooded the earth, that's how I want to bless you. That's how I want to bless you. We know this. I think we walk around not convinced of this most of the time. But we need only to look to one place to know that it's true. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says that he gave us his son. How will he not then along with him give us all things? You say, well, I asked God for something and he didn't give it to me. Okay, well, it's because he's a good father and he knows best. And this time in a broken world and me being a broken person, sometimes there are other priorities that God has. But never let that keep you from believing this important truth. God loves me, okay, but he likes me. He chose me. He smiles at me. He wants to bless me. He wants to bless all the time. He prefers to bless all the time. Do you know that this is who your God is? It's important for us to hang on to these things. For God, there isn't a distinction between loving and liking. We kind of do this, but for God, it doesn't really exist. If, if you're reading something in Scripture and says that how great is the love of, those, of God for those who fear him, you can assume it includes all of these other things as well, that he is Set to bless me. He wants to bless me. My sin gets in the way. Other things get in the way, but he wants to bless me. He chose me. All of those things are completely true. If you've given your life to him, you know that that's the case. But you got to remember it because we buy this lie too often that God loves me, but he doesn't like me. There's a famed theologian. His name was Karl Barth. And he lived until the early part of the 20th century And he was prolific. He wrote and studied and considered many, many, many different incredible theological truths, all kinds of things that he published throughout his life. And he was nearing the end of his life, and somebody asked him a question. They said, Carl, what is, of all the things you've studied, all the things you've learned, all the things that you've published, what's the most profound truth that you've ever come across about God? He said, what's the most profound one? And his answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I only say that if you understand what that means. It's not just this passive love. Yeah, you, well, you're, you're in. You're, you got in at the back of the boat, barely got on. No, he chose you. 
He wants you. He wants to bless you. He gives you his favor and he smiles upon you. Wants to spend time with you. This can be the game changer for those of you struggling with daily devotions. If you know that you're going to spend time with somebody who is wanting to spend time with you every day. You're like, well, I haven't done it in six years. Okay, do it tomorrow because he wants to spend time with you. This is absolutely huge. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We learn that when we're kids. But there's a second verse, actually. Did you know that there's a second verse to this? Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm weak and very ill. From his shining throne on high comes to watch me where I lie. He gets close. He pays attention. Because God loves me, but he doesn't like me as a lie. He likes you. He wants you. He chose you. Remember these things. I'm going to close uh, with the priestly prayer for you guys. Would you stand up? I'm going to read this over you right now. I want you to allow these words from God to wash over your mind and your heart this morning before we move on to another thing. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. We'll see you next week.